Hi, this is a special episode. I know, I know, every episode. But this time I mean it. Not like those other times. There keep being more reasons for something to mean something. Does this mean that things are getting more meaningful? Does this mean that everything is poetry? I think that's a plausible theory. And we're donating today's episode to science as proof. Our show for Epiphany Literary Journal's Empire issue was our first show featuring a periodical. And it was... It was so satisfying on so many levels. Kind of, kind of nuts amazing. A kaleidoscope of insight, talent, creativity from a lot of artists, writers, musicians, songwriters. And not only was this show our first to feature a periodical, but it was our first show back at Barbez in Park Slope, Brooklyn, since the pandemic. Barbez has been our Brooklyn home for events for the past several years, and we donated proceeds from our first live stream to make sure that it was still standing after the dust settled. And of course, it's still pretty dusty. But Barbez is also still here and continuing to present some of the best musical happenings in all of Brooklyn. I wanted to say, in all the land. And that may as well be true. You have to step into that back room to experience it yourself, you know, after you present your vaccination card and everything. The Empire issue of Epiphany itself was dense, with such thought-provoking, rich literary material to inspire all the new music and performance that night, and it was a privilege and pleasure for us to connect with this awesome community of hugely talented writers from all over the country. In this episode, you're going to hear many of the writers featured in Epiphany, as well as the Bushwick Book Club musicians as they introduce themselves. I was curious what the writers were listening to and what the musicians were reading. I asked for the writers to share with us their most recent earworm or whatever song was most recently stuck relentlessly in their head. And I asked for the musicians to share what their most recent read was or what's on their nightstand. The guest editor for The Empire Issue was author Samir Pandya, and here are a few words from him. My name is Samir Pandya. I'm a novelist, and I teach at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I uh, was the guest editor for uh, Epiphany's issue uh, entitled Empire. I'd like to briefly read from uh, the introduction that I wrote for this special issue. The resilience and varied nature of empire has been made crystal clear in our recent history with the rise of nationalism and authoritarianism across the world, COVID-19 and the global pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement and the demand for social and racial justice in the United States and across the world. Rightfully so, we have collectively been engaged in difficult and necessary conversations around power and privilege, resistance and freedom. It is with the resilience and variation of empire in mind that we have brought together the stories, essays, poems, art, and interview in the special issue of Epiphany. In making our choices, we picked pieces where the words and sentences popped out, where characters hung around in our heads well after we had finished reading, where ideas stuck to our guts. But we also made our choices in an effort to bring together different kinds of writers riffing on and rifling through how we are living in the long shadow of multiple empires, some far back in our rearview mirror, some that are crumbling, and yet others that are ascendant. We hope you enjoy reading these pieces as much as we have. I want to now briefly turn to 
a second more important question, which is what is the kind of most recent earworm I've had? And um, it's the beginning chords uh, of Eminence Front by The Who. And I think like most earworms, I have no idea how it's been stuck in my head and why it's been stuck in my head, but uh, it has been stuck nevertheless. And uh, I sometimes drive around just kind of flipping through radio stations because, you know, sometimes it's fun to flip through radio stations and hoping to find the beginning of that song coming on. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Don Zancanella. And the story I contributed to Epiphany's Empire issue is In the Duchy of Carniola. And the song that's been stuck in my head recently is Finishing the Hat from the Stephen Sondheim musical Sunday in the Park with George. It just appeared in my mind this morning, uh, and I don't know why. My name is Charlie Neeland. My song is Hypnotized, inspired by Don Zancanella's short story In the Duchy of Carniola. Lately I've been reading Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink by Elvis Costello. Shadow, it wraps its wings around your fate. 
An undulating black flag Who never makes you wait Where is the thing that takes us Out of all of this Our deus ex machina Betrays us with a kiss Hypnotize My dragon's eyes Burning in your heart A fire in an amusement park Watching the collapse she promised me Do the dirty dance Of the refugee Hi, my name is Celia Bland And the title of my poem is Empires um, Which was just recently published In Epiphany's Empire issue um, there is a song that has been stuck in my head for weeks. It is a Burt Backrack song called Anyone Who Had a Heart, sung with extraordinary controlled hysteria by Dionne Warwick. Um, it, it's really worth a listen. Um, I know that when I sing it in my head, which I'm doing constantly, I'm getting all the words wrong. But even so, it's such a, a driving lyric. Thanks. Empires. Reading Louis XVI's journal. How fill a creamy emptiness. With ten stags, four with eight-point racks. Sixteen jackrabbits, one halved to reveal babies. One wild cat, one tusked boar. Two foxes, one dusky blonde as a Habsburg. With a long-barreled, single-shot rifle, a spear, a pike, a silver knife to slit veiny necks. With drives in his carriage and rides on a big haunch horse. With the metal locks he fabricates and the keys fashioned to unlock them. With sitting to meals of seven to fifteen courses and four to seven kinds of flesh. Perhaps lists of the dead are appropriate markers of those final days. Autopsy. Napoleon's father was found to have a tumor growing just below the esophagus. Like a cantaloupe, it ripened as Napoleon's pear wasted. A deadly impediment. Many think Napoleon was poisoned on St. Helena, but others believe the symptoms of his death mirrored his father's. On the island, the wind blew constantly. I saw his rooms on Elba, his penultimate prison, where he reorganized the island government and his guards and the herds of goats, and then escaped to rally his troops and march against Europe. Louis XVIII, restored, fled Paris immediately. Damn, said the Duke of Wellington. In the Mekong, the monkey was half scalped. One lobe furred and fine, and the other open to the breezes and variegated as meat. Its fur ruched down like a Roman shade. Surely it would die. Its worried, wrinkled, bony face is bleak 
as a woman's after her second G&T, knew this jungle was not a zoo, no keepers, no tranquilizers, no meds. She had been the leader. Now she was a hysterectomized uterus, cast off as useless. The adolescent males and the old ladies hung near her, but when one of my party threw her a banana, one of her party leapt forth and caught it like an outfielder. Everybody, this is Chris Rayo. Hi. What a fun privilege to get to do this right after Celia read the poem. And uh, as you heard, it's short and it's in three sections, so my song is short in three sections. here and the book that's on my nightstand is the maroon comics origins and destinies by quincy sal illustrated by seth sabokoman mac mcgill and sanj riddle it was released by pm press 
and it is a real revolutionary book and it will change your perspective on a lot of things. Really, really recommend. Greetings, everybody. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, huge thanks to Bushwick Book Club and Epiphany. Um, so the poem that I wrote my song towards um, is by the poet Melissa Kasumbal Salazar. And her poem, Salin Ning Lahi, instantly spoke to me. It sang to me right away as I read it. Why do we do the things we do to build an empire? Why do we do the things we do to build an empire, build some community? Where's your community? This is Susan Huang again. My song was inspired by Beth Piatote's poem, Museum Correspondence Hincaista. And what I've been reading is Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. 
it's there's like not there's not a bad page in the book I'm, I'm telling you but maybe you already know because it's a classic and everybody else read it when they were in high school except for me we break the garden the missing remains of our ancestors a
She was a child. She was a child. She was a child. She was a child. This is Teresa Toro. My song is called Downstream, inspired by Nicole V. Basta's poem, Epigenetics, or I Think of a Few Bones Floating on a River at Night. Right now, I am rereading and savoring Bluets by Maggie Nelson. Downstream, 
This is Mark L. Keats. I contributed the short story Among the Drowned to Epiphany's Empire issue. The song that has most recently been stuck in my head is by composer Eric Satie, uh, namely his Gymnopédie. I first became aware of Eric Satie after reading Caitlin Horrock's wonderful novel, The Vexations. Uh, the novel focuses um, almost exclusively on Satie's life, including a lot of his family members and friends. Um, from there, just natural curiosity led me to look him up on YouTube, um, and I would highly recommend his compositions to anyone who has not heard of him before. My name is Sung Yuni Lee. I created a piece in response to Mark Keats' Among the Drowned. Um, my performance was auditory soundscapes to activate the senses. Currently, I'm reading the book Beloved by Toni Morrison. Okay, so during World War II, uh, Japan was the imperial ruler of Korea right before World War II, and then during World War II, they kidnapped uh, teenage girls to be the, um, the wives of the soldiers. Um, so that was, and then, you know, they all also like, because it's a very shameful thing to happen, they also couldn't return back to their home. So it's like a extreme isolation. Southeast Korea, 1940. The men take the girl to a seaport town. She sits between them, hands folded in her lap. And for a moment, she's reminded of her mother's hands, how the priest has showed her how to pray he said, and pointed upward. He is always listening. When she asks about her errand, about the direction they are headed, the men remain quiet, eyes focused on the road. The girl thinks of her mother, and baby sister thinks, I don't need a job now, then says, I need to get back, please, hoping they will stop. The truck continues on. Please? My mother, she says in Korean, an accident. Silence, and then from seemingly nowhere, a hand, contact, skin upon skin, on her face, as she says, please again, please stop, please. The men expect her to cry out, to scream and hit, to fight. They have experienced this all before, know what to do if she becomes aggressive, tries to escape. But the girl does not cry out or strike back. She instinctively raises her hand to where she was struck, feels a sensation of warmth, recalls her mother's hands, callous though gentle, comforting her as they held the news of her father's death between them. It will be okay, she said. Yes, we will, we still have each other. Pacific Ocean, 1941. So many girls became sick, feverish. And the men, Japanese now, became increasingly angry, cursing and spitting, beating and kicking, dragging bodies outside. Fourteen and fifteen, all the girls on the boat, a few older, and so, a new assignment, new work, another way to help the Imperial Army, a trip across the ocean, undulations. And the girl wretches continuously, her body shaking, tears emerging from the inability to give up what the body has so desperately tried to hold, ration. Her mouth is dry and her throat and lungs burn. The tears come faster than memories of her mother and baby sister. Where are you, the memories ask. 
I'm sorry, Uma, the girl says to the memory and image of her mother. I'm so very sorry. And then, like an apparition from the other side of the boat's darkness, a familiar outline and form appears. She comes to the girl's side and holds her hand, steadies her until the girl can catch her breath, begin to relax her muscles, begin to see clearly the outline and form before her. Another girl. Thank you, the girl says, her hair sticking to her face from the sweat and tears, unsure if this girl is real, an apparition, or somehow a dream. Thank you, she says again. But the other girl remains silent, squeezes just barely the girl's hand to indicate life. She speaks with her eyes and touch. South Pacific, 1943. The soldier lights a cigarette, exhales. Over a year, he imagines his mother and father, his younger brother back home in Busan, how they must all sacrifice for the emperor, how he too must stand here far from them, from home. He exhales. There is a cadence to his thoughts if he tries, step by step, but also an ebb and flow that relies on the possibilities of stark truth, nakedness, perhaps the obscene. If he listens closely, the trees begin to shift outside, causing the leaves to rustle, and they remind him that while death is permeating throughout the air, the world is still churning. Seasons are changing. Babies are crying for their mothers. Fathers are playing with their sons. And people are returning home after a long day of work. Life moves forward mercilessly. The men are still yelling and shouting. They yell for him to hurry, to finish. They say, your time is up. As he walks down the corridor, the lantern above rocks back and forth gently. It creaks lightly. It is a dim light, and he hears sounds that seem unnatural at first, then remind him that a war is going on. Other girls are crying, some screaming, though many remain silent. And he can hear the urgency in the men's voices. The smell is strong before he reaches the exit. This is Leah Umansky, and I'm reading a poem of mine in the new Empire issue of Epiphany magazine. Also, the last song stuck in my head is Bloody Valentine by Machine Gun Kelly. Call and response and anchoring. I tell a friend there is so much to feel guilty about. Then I think about how this is a woman's thought. A woman's problem. The way we anchor ourselves to annihilation. The way we anchor ourselves to the mast. Ready to go down. I tell the nurse at pre-surgical that this was my choice. I'm 41, I say. This is what I want. No guilt. No regrets. 
And she says, that is beautiful. And I know it is. This hope, this plan, this wind thrusting my sail forward. I am the anchoring, the anchor. I exist, and I exist for myself. I exist for others, but those in my fold, in my choosing. The semantics of my leap or my stacking, my moving metaphor, my rowing full speed ahead is mine and mine alone. I can't pretend otherwise. Fran Leibowitz, please pretend it's a city, and I already am. The city is my version of the city, my own hovering scent above the street musk, my own vividness, portraiting the runes and treasures at every turn. Of course, this is a leap. The city is also an ugly vein bursting. Of course, this is just semantics. Potato, potato, of course. There is much the guilt of all the not doing. All the not doing enough. All the knots not me up inside. But then I think of the snow this week, and I am in that sharp crush of brilliance and gleam. In the brilliance and gleam, I am not a city of one, but a city of plenty. I am alert and pressing. I am a mind spread out, a smooth meandering of thought, a day of ever, everlasting in my own sprout of a city, my own block of myth and resilience and the long line of hope. I think back to the want, to the decision. The mark was already laid upon me, wasn't it? My practicing of love, all my self-proclaimed antidotes, already setting the stage. This little place of my heart, the rock of my dry run, all the turns I've taken, just a cling for the dream to hold. My horoscope says to appreciate the same treasures and patiently gather them in. I am well-versed in gathering. I am gathering the love now. There is no chance to do anything over again. Who is ever ready? Who is ever ready? The definition of responsible is being able to respond. This is Susan Huang, and I'm reading another piece featured in our show for Epiphany's Empire Issue. 11 Reasons Why Asian Americans Are Very Good at Math by Grace Chow. 1. Because we can't, we won't fail at anything we do. 2. Because knowing the value of a derivative is critical. The derivative is almost always close to zero for us and limitless for everyone else. Kung Pao Chicken without MSG. A thousand golden years. Jacquard mandarin collars and kimono sleeves without Asian bodies. A never-ending waterfall of good fortune and prosperity. Two-second punchlines, only Asians included. Priceless. 3. We deploy complex eye-to-nose-to-mouth ratios to tell all our beige faces apart. We start practicing from birth. 4. Asian Americans, especially children, are even better at fractions and subtraction. The number of birthday parties we have been invited to as one Asian child out of 160 total children attending Hill Creek Elementary in Austin, Texas, is 0 out of 20. And don't forget the pizza party where the mom and dad took everyone to watch Mulan. We keep telling ourselves that 1999 was 22 years ago, which everyone says is more like 88 years ago. So can't we forget about it already? 
It's called the order of operations, everyone says, or thinks if they don't say. Five, because there is no time for sex, and all the free time we have must be saved for studying math, which is why we're so good at it. We grew up learning that Asian men don't have sex, and Asian women have lots of it, but only as dragon lady prostitutes or super docile bound-up duct-taped fawns, which doesn't really fit our style. Thus, we only have time for surprised-slash-amused sex. Six, again, you only get wizard crazy at math after days and weeks and years of practice. And Asian Americans are professionals at doing the same thing again and again and again, including starting over. We shoveled 20 pounds of rocks 400 times a day, and when laying 700 miles of train tracks from California to Utah wasn't enough, we left for 80 years and returned to wash suits and fry rice and start multi-billion dollar apps. We stitched on our puffy Uniqlo zip-ups. How about now? 7. Also between 1883 and 1965, see above, we had more than enough years to brush up on linear algebra and combinatorics and differential equations in case anyone wanted to test us when we came back. We had so many years to study that half of us died. Turns out, everyone just wanted to copy our answers. 8. Because our dark-haired fathers, wooden rulers snapping in tanned fists, forced us to be great at it. 9. Speaking of basics, knowing how to count is extremely important. That is why we know exactly the number of Asian Americans who have been nominated for a Best Actor Oscar. 1. The number of Asian Americans who have ever won a Supporting Actor Oscar. 2. The number of major Hollywood releases with an Asian principal cast. 2. Well, looks like you don't really have to know how to count when calculating Asian American Hollywood affairs, unless it is the number of times Asian men have been christened Dong on screen. More useful to remember the real names in this case. Stephen Yoon, Alive. Heng S. Angor, murdered. Miyoshi Umeshi, also dead. 10. When we do have to count, no one will do the counting for us. The government, local or national, will not count the number of people who look like us who are being spit on, robbed, stabbed, or murdered per year in 2021 or 100 years ago. So we must count the runny faces and bloody bodies ourselves. 3,800. 3,801. 3,802. 3,803. Then drink two glasses of oolong tea to hydrate. Also, biology or whatever you need to know to create mega-mutant viruses is getting a bad rap when paired with Asians, so math... The more advanced, the more impressive, is a welcome guise. 11. Let me tell you, all Asian Americans are good at math because math makes sense. Math is truth. 4 plus 4 equals 8, and we can find the volume of a cylinder by multiplying pi by radius squared by height, whether the cylinder is a bottle of Taiwan beer or a grain silo we spot on a road trip 
or the amount of air that our black-haired, beige-skinned, dark-eyed bodies are allowed in an expanse that is rarely ours. Math is what is left after we have lifted away the layers of physics, chemistry, biology, and psychology. Psychology being the process that rockets through our brain when we ask, why is it okay that the progressive-looking comedian at the comedy cellar can still point at our faces and ask if our mother is a tiger and if our cocktail is sporting a tariff? And if we met each other on Asian Swipe, oh, how hilarious, because he made up that app the moment he saw us as he climbed on stage. Why is it okay that the family that arrived second is seated first at the restaurant that our older sister picked out on the night of her college graduation, a microbiology bachelor's and an art history minor? Who cares if we saved money or years for this day? Why is it okay that our father, aged 60 years, American for 35, is made to stand in an interrogation room in the San Francisco airport for an hour, no chairs and no phones, no matter that the metal detector picked up radiation in his blood from a procedure to passage four stents into his afflicted heart, and there are hospital records to prove it. So what if he can also speak English to explain it? Why is it okay that the women and men of all ages at the comedy cellar are still snickering, giggling, guffawing, silent, staring deep into their drinks, weeknights, weekdays, weekends? Math does not budge. Math does not favor. Math will never leave. When we have stripped the scarves and coats of the store, office, street, and school, untied our shoes, and opened the bright wooden door to home, we see what is left and what is true. Our mother, father, sister, brother, waiting, room warm, dinner ready, faces and full hearts screaming, we know. Hello, I'm Bina Kamlani and I contributed the short story Blacklist to Epiphany's Empire issue, summer 2021. The song I have in my head since I first heard it at the Bushwick Book Club is Patricia Santos's No One Saviour. From the very first few bars, I knew Patricia had totally got my story. Her powerful lyrics and the Gaelic cadences of the piece she played on the cello so beautifully reflected that. Her music radiated outwards from the heart of the story. And I'm delighted to say I just can't, nor do I want to, get it out of my head. Thanks, Patricia, for this brilliant piece. This is Patricia Santos. I wrote and performed No One Savior in response to Bina Kamlani's Black Lace. Bloodless Bertha will have you locked away. You know. 
she's not a pious nun You've seen her lingerie For hubris like hers Will there be a judgment day? Xavier, read you by your feathers Why would you trust in your oppressors? They eat your children's food And drink of your endeavors Are you the same as a child on the scale? Love their displeasures. Layla, Layla, tell us what you're thinking. It's important to listen and then do the right thing. Everyone gets the chance at least once in their lifetime. This has a solution, but it's not just yours to find. Clementine with the inscrutable skin You had committed an inexcusable sin Betraying trust and selling out your people's dutiful kin Layla, a child in the tower A savior locked within Mother superior, white as a whether lustful, smug, or seething with rage Enslaving the villagers while pandering for praise Acting the savior, a rose of Sharon, a sage Layla, Layla, tell us what you're thinking It's important to listen and then do the right thing Everyone gets the chance at in their lifetime this has a solution but it's not just yours to Chill. 
earth want them when they try Changes take learning and doing Not just standing by Do we really need more convincing? Hi, I'm Ilya. Uh, I wrote Fatherlands. Um, it's a story. Uh, it's also, I created a new yogurt flavor, which you can pick up at the merch stand outside. It is unrefrigerated, so be warned. Uh, here's an excerpt. When I was brought home from the hospital, a man was trying to break into our apartment. My mother had stayed behind at the clinic to resolve some complications from the ordeal of birthing me. And so it fell to my father and grandfather to deliver me to the 20-story concrete slab that would be my first address. It was a white hell of a winter in a part of the USSR where winter is the only season known. And I was cocooned in so many layers I could have passed for a fresh-baked loaf of bread that somehow had learned to shit itself. The two men ferrying this bundle, on the other hand, were half-frozen in their thin coats. In my father's case, he was unsure whether he was shivering from the cold or the fear ransacking his mind. A first-time father at 27 years old, he lacked even the rudiments of child-rearing knowledge. What does a baby eat? When does it sleep? How do you teach it math? When does it learn that God doesn't exist? He looked down at the tiny thing wedged in the crook of his arm and was terrified by our mutual ignorance. My grandfather was a man of few words and had already exhausted his meager supply attempting to reassure my father during a long trip from the hospital to little effect. They entered the apartment building like two great elms shagged in snow and shook themselves clean in the entryway, my father careful not to jostle the creature in his care. They tramped up to the third floor and as they turned down the hallway, saw a man standing outside my parents' door. The man had his waist angled close to the lock as if preparing to make love to the keyhole, but instead he jiggered a thin steel pick into the mechanism. My father and grandfather paused and made reconnaissance under the flickering light of the single bulb overhead. Without exchanging a word, they spread out to block the path of escape and crept toward the stranger. So intent was he on his work that he didn't notice the two men until they had him boxed in. The burglar was in his late 30s, knobby in the way of the perpetually thin and with skin paler than the season allowed. You could see he was accustomed to dark corners, was unhappy to be caught in the light. He looked up at my father's face above him and then up further still at my grandfather's. It was a bad situation. Dad and grandpa were both big men, career soldiers to boot. Military folks the world over will tell you theirs is not a business of violence, but of discipline and resolve. That's a lie. Principles of restraint adhere only to the trigger just before it's pulled. My father gingerly passed me into my grandfather's hands to free up his own and leaned down at the man. What's the matter, he said. Well, you see, I've locked myself out, the burglar offered. You've locked yourself out of an apartment that isn't yours? The man made a show of looking at the number on the door as if seeing it for the first time. Oh, but this is 323, 
What an idiot I am. I've gotten the wrong place entirely. Let's take a moment to note that while this is a true story, in a certain sense, it never happened. In the proletarian utopia, there was no crime, no burglary or fraud or picked pockets, because everything a citizen could need was provided to him. In the absence of want, there was no impulse to take from others. And so, doctrinally speaking, this would-be burglar did not exist. Yet here he was in defiance of party logic. My father observed the man closely, noting his mismatched shoes and the many holes in the clothing sloughing off his star frame. In another time, Dad might have had sympathy for the thief, but in that moment, he was possessed by an alien feeling. There was a newcomer in his life, a fragile pink thing he'd named not two hours prior. He thought about my wrinkled eyes and fat cheeks and toothless gawping mouth, a being wholly helpless that he dragged screaming before the judgment of the world. My father thought to hell with the army and the party and the whole doomed project of civilization. My only purpose now is to protect this child from the cruelties ahead. And most of all, to hell with this thief for stealing even a molecule of my son's breath. His muscles tensed and shook and readied for murder. My father raised his fists as the thief pleaded, wait, wait, wait. Hi, this is Leanne Smith. I wrote a song titled Things You Wouldn't Believe, which was a phrase taken from the end of the story Fatherland by Ilya Leibovich.
This is John S. Hall. I wrote and performed A Difficult Apple, inspired by Shang Yang Fang's poem of the same name. The last thing I read was A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors by David Thompson. How's that? This is just the intro, so I can play it again. No one will even know. <laughs> so attached to your difficult apple no need to explain the things that you do your difficult apple how I hope to bite into you look at the way you're itching to shed your skin Look at your arms and legs twitching Hoping to get out of whatever you're in You're a difficult apple You didn't fall so far from the tree You're a difficult apple Hope you save a bite for me Screams that you're so attached to. Look at 
look at your body itching to get out of your skin. Look at your beautiful body twitching. Let me help you out of your skin. You're a difficult apple. I can't explain the things that you creating art in a, cre in a spiritual way, adding to the progress of humanity, a, a higher goal. Sometimes I get sick of me and my friends trying to create stuff that nobody wants. <laughs> Thinking the world needs to hear what we think about something. Nobody cares. <laughs> Go plant a field of corn. No beast of burden. See where you land. Nobody cares. All people want is to eat and sleep and love and live in a nice place in the sunshine, which makes you wonder why people live in Ireland. <laughs> or Greenland or North Dakota. I'm sure there's a good reason. But I'd rather just lay on this beach. Eternal sunshine. What could be better than that? And Susan's been asking me to do this for, again for a while, and I appreciate that. It's one of the few things that I'm good at, this and painting houses. Now my knee is broken, and I'm retired, and I'm not digging the beginnings of being old. So why should I write a song and take the F train out to Barbess for no money? Just to hear a few people applaud whether they like it or not. What the fuck? <laughs> Teresa keeps sending out emails about the rules, and I love Teresa, but I stopped reading emails long time ago. No rules apply to me, you'll see. Friends of Epiphany, a difficult apple. Yeah, I'll say. That's for sure. And I can't get the sound of John Berger and Daniel Saffler out of my head. Am I shallow? Probably. Political? Impossibility. Giovanni Colantonio. The lawyers never noticed. An ode to a poet named Keats. Different parents would have been Yates. I think I'd rather just lie on the beach 
Change my name back to Stephen from Ray. Try to heal a hurt heart that hates. Hey, Susan. Give me the deeds. You know, after your parents are dead, the idea of having your poems published in the literary journal loses a little, actually it loses all of its appeal. And just last week I was having lunch with my friend Bo and his new baby and I told him that I recently heard about a man who, whose wife had to stay in the hospital after childbirth. And he was home alone with the baby without a clue what to do. Maybe I half read that story. But it's still in my head just like a burglar at the door. And it's all too much. I'm full. I'm empty. This is a brief history of me going out of business. And there is a difference between an interview and a brief conversation between two and when you mention tropes you lose me and now you've lost me cause I'm lazy okay I'll force myself excerpts divorce well that's a little close as a recent divorce but hey there's some good news this just got a little better, or maybe the Wellbutrin just kicked in. <laughs> Michael from mountains, dragging bridges, and dirty, 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 dirty girls. And the nuns all dressed up for their big day. I rarely read books anymore. I prefer YouTube and Texting friends and strangers in time zones other than my own. Thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast and all the work of Bushwick Book Club, you can make your tax-deductible donation to Venmo at Bushwick Book Club or paypal.me slash Bushwick Book Club. If you want more info on us, go to the Bushwick Book Club website, bushwickbookclub.com. We've got video clips on the YouTubes, and we're all over the social medias, of course. We're very stockable. The Bushwick Book Club podcast is produced by Lusterlet, which is... Charlie Nealand, and me, Susan Huang. See you for more book-inspired times. And remember, book-inspired times are good times. Or close enough. Bye now.